Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. One of the most contentious questions when we look at a future energy system with a lot of wind and solar power at its heart is what to do when it's not windy and not sunny. There are those who think that this problem is so intractable that the answer must be to go to a nuclear-based system. There are those who think that the answer is so simple because experience curves will make batteries so cheap and we'll come up with something. And there are those, like me, who think we're gonna to have to do a lot of different things using a lot of different technologies, including long duration hydrogen storage. My guest today is in the latter camp with me. It's Professor Sir Chris Llewellyn-Smith, Emeritus Professor of Physics at the University of Oxford, former Director General of CERN. He's also authoring a study on behalf of the Royal Society into the future of the UK power system, looking through a specific lens around long duration power storage. Please join me in welcoming Professor Sir Chris Llewellyn-Smith to Cleaning Up. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on Cleaning Up. It's a pleasure. Can we start, as I always do, by asking you to give a thumbnail bio in your own words? Um, and you have such an illustrious career that it'll need to be the short version, but uh, tell us who you are uh, in the, as I say, the thumbnail version. Okay, so by background, I'm a theoretical particle physicist. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, I had a hand in what's constructing what's called the standard model of particle physics. The idea of protons and neutrons are made of quarks and gluons. And uh, also, I uh, was able to show that we had to have something like the Higgs boson that attracted some attention. And then, for complicated reasons, although I'm a theorist, I found myself in the 90s as Director General of CERN in Geneva. I've been working a lot on the physics case for building the MHC, but then I found myself as Director General putting together the proposal with all the money that was needed, persuading the governments, bringing the Americans, Japanese in, and I got the project funded and construction started, and the rest is history. Then I left, and since then I've done a number of things. I worked in fusion for a time, uh, but for the last 15 years I've been working primarily on more or less all aspects of energy supply and demand. In the last three or four years, I've been leading a major Royal Society study of large-scale electricity storage. We're going to focus on that study for the Royal Society today. Although before we do that, two things. One is you talk about the LHC, that's Large Hadron Collider, which is uh, ITER in, in uh, Catarache in France, correct? Uh, that's the Large Hadron Collider. I was involved with ITER. That's a completely different thing in my career in fusion. I was the chairman of the board, as a matter of fact. Ah, okay. I've, I've co-mingled two things. But the other thing I wanted to just touch on, because I absolutely love the wording, is that in 2001, you were given a knighthood, and it was for services to particle physics. That's and I don't true. know that anybody else can say that. I think that's true, but I'm not certain. Very good. Well, we've established your bona fides as a scientist, and now we're going to move on to that Royal Society um, study. And that was, you've described it in talking to me as this sort of 
system study, and it's really, we've talked about resilience, but you've also described it as a storage study. Um, can you start by talking about the terms of reference of, of that whole piece of work? Well, we didn't have any formal terms of reference, but what we decided to do at the beginning uh, was look at large-scale electricity storage. So an underlying assumption of all this, which I think everybody would agree to, is that as we go to 19, 2050, and we're looking ahead to 2050, thinking of the end point, but haven't worried about the path there very much, we think by then a very large part of our electricity will come from wind and solar because they're cheap. But of course, the sun doesn't shine the whole time, the wind doesn't blow, they vary a lot. So if you have a lot of wind and solar, there'll always be times when there's not enough. So you've got to complement it with something else. So there's basically two things you can do. There are times when there's too much wind and solar, so you can store the excess and use it when there's a deficit, and or you could have a mixture. You can find other flexible sources of supply. So we've studied the storage option, and then we did compare with what are the other options. We think storage is the cheapest option. And you're into the land of trade-offs, aren't you? Because you can have overcapacity on generation, and then that enables you to have less storage, um, or you can have no overcapacity and then store everything extra that gets made at any, any time when it's very windy and sunny, right? That's right. So there is a trade-off. Um, and there's a minimum in the cost. I mean, you, you can't get everything from wind and solar, however much. I mean, there are periods, maybe even weeks occasionally, when there's no wind and solar. So we find that somewhere between about 25% more wind and solar being generated than electricity demand and something like uh, 60, 70%, uh, there is a sort of flat minimum in the cost. The cost you need less and less storage as the wind and solar supply goes up, but you're paying more and more for the wind and solar. So there's, you know, one is cost is going down, the other is going up. There's a large flat minimum. One of the takeaways I think from your work is that you don't actually have to get it exactly right because it's quite a flat plateau. That optimization, as long as you are somewhere in that zone between, you said it's something like 25% overcapacity relative to demand and 60 or 70 percent it's fairly flat because you're adding capacity and removing storage or vice versa well it that depends on the storage technologies you're using these numbers actually detail but um in the case that we looked at first which we'll come to in a minute the ideal number is about 33 percent 20 percent might be a bit low uh it's a, but it's quite broad and before we dive into the detail of that case, let me let, let's probe a little bit more some of the boundary conditions or what you've got in there, um, because that is we've we've dived into this. I think what we do agree, every, I think pretty much everybody would agree, lots of wind and solar, but not everybody would agree that it's only wind and solar. And so we've got nuclear, we've got biomass, we've got all, you know a number of other uh, biogas. Uh, and of course, interconnections with our uh, esteemed European partners, which we currently already have something like eight gigawatts of interconnections. So what have you assumed on all of those dimensions? Well, what we've done in the first instance, we've neglected them. So we said, let's look at a very simple case as a benchmark, see what could you do it without those things? What would it cost? And then we ask, what happens if you add them? But it gets very complicated when you start adding many things. But they are not, 
I mean, there will be some nuclear, presumably Hinkley Point in the UK will get built, so that will be operating in 2050 if, if it's ever built. There will be some burning of waste and uh, some biomass, which there is at the moment. Uh, there'll be a little bit of hydro, but they're not huge. They're not going to be huge on the scale of demand we're going to have in 2050. So in the first instance, we neglect them. As far as interconnectors are concerned, uh, we've taken the view that um, the, the difficulty we face is that they, you get wind drives. You get periods of a couple of weeks every 10 years or so, or even longer periods, where there's almost no wind. And if that's true in the UK, it's going to be true across North, North, uh, Northern Europe. So it will be, we think it would be not prudent to build a system which couldn't work if we, we couldn't import. So we, we haven't concluded interconnectors. On the other hand, they will be there and they will add a degree of flexibility. So they'll help manage the system. So if I'm right, then what you've said is um, you're doing an upper, something, some sort of an upper bound sort of, um, based on the worst case, which is when we need the power, Europe needs it too. And therefore interconnectors can't be relied on. That's right. So in some sense throughout, we're looking at the worst case. So for example, uh, we look to begin with about uh, one mode of storage, which we cost very, very carefully. And then if you say to me, hey, but adding something else might make it cheaper. If it made it more expensive, you wouldn't do it. If it makes it cheaper, you would. So by looking at one system, you're getting the worst case, if you like. And what about um, my favorite, and I say that because I'm an investor, X-Links, where you've got wind and solar in North Africa, not coming through the European grid, but right around the outside, subsea and into the system. Um, so it's, it's no different in a sense from offshore wind, except that it happens to be onshore in Morocco. Okay. Well, I have looked at that and I, but it's, it's not able by 2050 when our electricity demand will be twice what it is today. It's not going to be able to, it could be very helpful, but it's not going to be able to provide a major fraction. So again, in the spirit of saying, let's look at the worst case, we haven't taken into it, it into account. We're also worried about systems that might be politically vulnerable. Now, at the moment, North Africa is fairly stable, but I don't think we can be sure that that will be the case in 2050. The reason I'm probing here is that um, actually just at the end of last week, the Climate Change Committee uh, produced an analysis of a decarbonized electricity system by 2035, which is a commitment that the government has also made, and how we might do that. And what they uh, have come up with is 70% wind and solar, and then 20% is nuclear and other dispatchable forms, so nuclear, biomass, uh, and then 10% is is this flexible, I think 8% 8 is flexible coming out of storage, and a couple of percent, they say, will still be uh, unabated gas. I haven't read their report, so I... I tread in this area with, with caution. Well, I find that quite difficult to believe because what we find is if we add nuclear, for example, first of all, you don't want to operate nuclear flexibly. Once you've built it, you want to operate it. But if you add nuclear, it will put up the average cost of power we get with just wind, solar, and storage, unless it's cheaper than the average that we get. And by all accounts, it's not going to be. And the reason for that is very simple. But if you add nuclear, you've effectively removed part of demand. Forget about it. 
So the thing that you're left to deal with, which is the difference between wind and solar supply and demand, has become more variable. So the cost of meeting that from storage goes up. So if you add nuclear to a system with wind, solar, and storage, the bit coming from wind and solar and storage becomes more expensive. So you shouldn't add it unless it's cheaper than what you started with. And it's probably not going to be. You can use it in a way which is flexible. But before you answer that, Chris, let's come back to nuclear because otherwise we'll get the nuclear sort of tail wagging the, the wagging the dog of the system that you have designed. And, and I, we had a wonderful episode a few weeks ago with Tom Sampson, who's the chap leading Rolls-Royce SMR and um, talking about how much it could cost and how flexible or otherwise. And we explored a few ways that you might be able to use nuclear that are flexible, that actually don't cause the problems that you've described. But but let's let's get back to the you know, the, the model that you've run, because it's got such powerful um, learnings. And as you say, then you can always flex it and see if you can improve on that. But there is there are some core outputs, aren't there? Yes. So uh, if we go back to that, uh, first of all, as I said, to discover what you need in the way of flexible generation or flexible supply from storage, you have to look at demand hour by hour. So we have a model of what we think not just what the level of demand will be, but how it will vary from hour to hour through the year. And you have to have a model of wind and solar supply. So the model of wind and solar supply we have was based on real wind and solar data turned into artificial energy as if we'd had all those power generation going back over 37 years. And at first I thought, well, that's quite good, 37 years, I don't know anybody else has looked at anything like that. And then various things we were finding made me worry that that's not enough, uh, because there are these very long-term variations, and it probably isn't enough, so we add some contingency. We can come back to whether it's enough. It doesn't cost very much, as a matter of fact. But one of the main messages from this study is that a lot of people who've looked at storage have said, oh, we'll look at a couple of typical years, maybe a bad year. That's not enough. You will get the wrong answer by a very, very large factor. I mean, we really find there is a need to store energy for 10 years, things like that in some cases. So looking at a few years, don't take seriously anybody who's modeled storage who hasn't looked at a very long period. And I think that's another uh, key learning um, not only the, the, uh, the first one was that we don't have to get this exactly right, but we definitely need contingency. We need more generation than than uh, one 100% of, of annual demand. But what you're saying is we might need quite a bit more because you can have bad wind years. You can have them one after the other. And, um, and, and you need a lot of data. 37 years is not enough. So you 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 can't go back further than that. You're going to add a contingent on top of it. Yes. So actually, you could go back, and nobody's done it. The wind and solar oh. this, but they haven't been turned into artificial you know, electricity generation. That's an exercise somebody should carry out. So we've added to the store. It's just a finger in the air. We said let's add twenty percent, make the store twenty percent bigger than we thought we needed. Now the interesting thing is. That only adds one pound of megawatt hour to the cost. So it's, it, you know, that's easy. If you say we want 40%, I can do it. Couldn't do a thousand percent. But the point about that is 
uh, but on the basis of what the, what we looked at, twenty percent seemed to light best gas. But the the, the contingency we built last. I mean, if we're going to build a lot of storage, we're going to build what we need, and then we'll say we're out of it. So by then, we'll know better what we're doing. Let's understand that because you know, adding twenty percent more storage and having only a pound, and for those who are not sort of um, totally fluent in electricity prices, you know, we're talking about. Um, generating wind uh, should be something like 37 pounds per megawatt hour. That's the most recent round of um, of, of bids. And generating uh, natural gas might be well, 40 pounds, 50 pounds power. Uh, so adding one pound doesn't sound much, but why is that? Can you describe, give us the shape of the system. How much wind, how much solar, where is it? How are we doing this? Okay, so and in a minute I'll have to go back to what storage we're assuming, which we've not discussed yet. But it's very simple. In the system that we're looking at, with nothing but wind, solar, and storage, storage at the energies that minimize the cost are only providing something like 15% of the power. Now, that the storage cost is broken into three parts. The part of converting the electricity into a storable form the cost of storing it, and the cost of converting it back into power. And they contribute equal amounts, roughly speaking. So the, the cost of storage only contributes 5% to the average cost of power. So you can add 20% of it, and it doesn't have a big effect. And this is the because, you, you first of all, you've got 85%, which is just about the costs of wind and solar, and they're getting cheap. And then you've got 15%. But even that, adding more storage, and we are talking here, and I'm, I'm going to lead you on to it, we're talking about hydrogen in salt caverns is your sort of base case, and just having more salt caverns only affects that middle third of the cost of the storage, right? So that's why when you multiply the percentages, it's actually not terrible just to have too much storage. That, that's right. It's, it's, it's okay. Now, you got down to hydrogen in caverns um, by a process of, was it intuitive elimination or was it sort of analytical elimination? And what did you eliminate? It was what we expected, but it was analytical elimination. So uh, when you look at these very long-term variations in wind supply, which um, are a lot that to do with what's called the North Atlantic oscillation changes. And by the way, the danger of them is uh, the periods when there's very little wind are correlated with periods when it's cold, so there's special demand for electricity. And we haven't treated the correlations as carefully as I would have liked, but they're, they're a sort of second-order feature. Uh, so when you look at this, you discover you've got to have some storage which will last 10 years or something like that. Now, that means you've got to have that the cost per unit volume of storage has got to be very low. I mean, you'd be bankrupt immediately if you try to use batteries. Batteries, uh, if you use them to store, you've got to fill them up and down very, very quickly to get your money back. But if there's a large capital cost sitting there just storing things, it better be not a large capital cost. It better be as small as you can get it. So in fact, for long-term storage, there are really only three options for very long-term storage, though we're going to add some others. And those are making hydrogen, making ammonia, but that's more expensive because ammonia is made from hydrogen. 
And not only that, making it takes energy. So it's going to be more expensive. And the other thing is to make, you know, make um, hydrocarbons artificially. But if you, those are called synthetic fuel. If you make synthetic fuel, you start by making hydrogen. So you might as well store the hydrogen. So for the long-term storage, it's very simple. We looked at hydrogen. And then, we can come back to this later, we asked, maybe there are some shorter-term storages which would lower the cost, that there are. Okay, so can, can we, let's come back to those, because I, I, um, I just want to do kind of, for the audience, right, there'll be some out there who have not spent a lot of time looking at storage, and for them, it's a battery, and you said that doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. now, and that's just because the cost is so high that you have to use it a lot to get your money's worth. But what about some others? Can we not do it from demand response? Can't we just shut down industry or ask people to turn the thermostats down? The, the problem with that is that um, it will help and it, it's, it's built into the model of demand that we use actually, that that's being done. But um, the difficulty is you get these periods of successive periods of very low supply. Now we could, you know, we can reduce our electricity demand for a few hours. We could produce it for a few days, but you know, we're talking about having to be, you know, lose half our electricity supply for weeks. Now, if the government wants to lose <laughs> the next election, that's what it makes sure happen. That's and it could be that it's, and it could be a few weeks, and then it could get better, and but then get worse again for another few weeks that's straight the after, right? They can, they can be repetitive, yeah. and that's why we put contingency in. Okay, so that's demand response. Yeah. Demand response, no. Batteries, no. What about pumped hydro? I mean, everybody knows that the people who have really got deep penetration of wind and solar have generally done it in countries sort of, you know, it's Costa Rica, it's uh, it's Norway, and can't we do that? Well, not in the UK. The pumped hydro, the, well, it, it, I mean, if you look to the Northeast United States, for example, there's a lot of capacity for hydro in Ontario. They can have a, a pumped hydro can play a big role, but the present capacity of pumped hydro at the moment in the UK, if you filled it up and then you drained it, you know, at least the maximum you could drain it, you would get 30 gigawatt hours. Now, your audience may not like the units, but we are wanting 30 terawatt hours. That is to say, the amount of pumped hydro in the UK is too small by a factor of 1,000. Now, you could say, build more, the capacity doesn't exist to build more than another 20-30% or something. Okay, very good. What about my next contender would be flow batteries. Everybody loves a good flow battery. So this is kind of, it's, it's like a fuel cell, but the electrolyte moves through it from one tank to another. The tanks can be as big as you like. Yes, I mean, it's like a battery, but the electrolyte is moving. Uh, flow batteries are very interesting and they can play a role but they're going to be too expensive to do the long-term stuff. They may help you in the intermediate term, but at the moment they're very expensive. And the reason that they're expensive is they rely on vanadium, which is an expensive material. Now, there are people, including British companies, who are developing flow batteries that use different materials. Now, so that, you know, watch this space. If those come on, that could pay a role, but in the category of storage where you've got to turn over the contents in, you know, a couple of weeks or less to get your money back. Now, there are a whole class of um, storage technologies there. Flow batteries is one, but, you know, today they're not really there. Compressed air, we'll cover that in a minute in more detail. It's the one we studied, actually. 
But then there are others. There are things called tunnel batteries. Now, this is stacking up a big pile of rocks, blowing hot air through them. They get hot, and then you get the heat back later to make power. Siemens were building one in Hamburg. They built one, and they said it's going to be followed by a bigger one, but they've abandoned it for reasons a bit unclear, actually. Uh, that's quite an interesting technology, we think. Uh, but we think that the third category, the most, the one that we've chosen as a sort of example of that whole class of things, we can't study eight different technologies that were in the book. Uh, we studied compressed air storage. So before before we do that, I just want to tick off my last contender as sort of, I hate to say it, but I don't want to call them no-hopers, but the uh, we had a bit of a controversy on this, uh, on, on cleaning up uh, with Francesco Starace, who is the CEO of um, uh, uh, of Enel, the big utility in Italy, um, who was a fan of gravitational mechanical storage. And I was very surprised because in all other things, I pretty much agree with him entirely. But on that one, I, I couldn't see the logic. Have you, did you, have you ever looked at it in any detail? Yes, we have looked at it. And there's another one being done in Italy that's quite interesting, uh, which is compressed carbon dioxide storage. Yes, uh, uh, which has the advantages. I didn't mention liquid air storage. That exists in the UK, actually. So you liquefy air, and then later you let it expand, and it turns a turbine. Uh, so that, you can't get very big units, but a lot of small units could have a role. So that's one of our contenders. Compress carbon dioxide also. The gravitational ones, there's a number of companies, and they can play a role in very short-term storage, for which we are going to need batteries, by the way, or something else like gravitational storage to deal with uh, outages. I mean, what happens is you get suddenly, you know, a power station goes down, power line collapses, or there's the proverbial half-time cup of tea in the cup final, and there's a sudden surge in demand. So to keep the system stable, you have to have some things that can respond in milliseconds. And hydrogen and so on can't do that. So we're going to need batteries or something like that. And I think gravitational energy can do that. But when you look at the amount of energy they can store, they just can't hack it. I mean, think about it. I just told you that acres of water, can, uh, letting that drop through a dam, can only produce you one thousandth of what we need. If you start about dropping weights artificially, I mean, you're not going to have acres of you know, concrete sitting up there 30 meters deep. Right, so I did the calculations for a, a one kilo weight, and um, in order to get the same energy out of dropping a one kilo weight as you get from one kilo of hydrogen, you'd have to drop it from 13,000 kilometers. But of course, at which point it's not dropping anywhere, it's off in, it, it's, it's off in, uh, in orbit or doing whatever it's doing. Right. I mean, I think there's a British company in Gravitricity, and good luck to them. And it may they want to put down old mine shafts and things like that. Yeah, but these are these are tiny, 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 tiny amounts compared to thirty terawatt hours. I mean, they're they're it's very rapid response storage. Yeah, um, they can deliver, and that takes very little energy. So we cost it. We assume batteries, but we don't model yeah. it because it has no. I'm assuming all of that goes to either demand response, batteries, or some kind of synthetic inertia, and we should move back to the core of the study um, because you've you've um, you've thrown out this number of thirty terawatt hours, and but I've also you've also spoken to me about eighty terawatt hours and a hundred terawatt hours. So under what conditions do we need what? 
Okay. So um, that's a difficult question because it depends. I'm always being asked, tell us what's Hollywood storage we need. And it's not a very well-defined question. First of all, if there's some nuclear, you're going to need less. So, you know, things like that. But also, as I said, it, it depends. There's this trade-off between how much you're prepared to build the wind and how much storage. So in the range we are looking at, we are to store, I don't know how 30 got in the conversation. Uh, oh, because we were putting a thousand times hydro. But actually, it's more than that. We need... But with just hydrogen, we need between about 16, well, between about 160 and 100 terawatt hours of, that's the heat capacity of the hydrogen. Now, to put that in context, the UK today is using about 300 terawatt hours a year of electricity. So the energy that's cultivated, the capacity has to be about uh, a third of the you know annual electricity generation in this country, something like that, depending on what units you use and so on and so forth. And and one thing we haven't um, touched on, and we need to, is that demand is going to go up, right? Because we didn't talk about the demand side. I'm assuming, at least I, I know because I've seen some of the uh, output already, that that is going to approximately double more than more than double in that period up to 2050, and that's because of transportation and heating going electric, I'm assuming. Yes. I mean, everybody agrees it's going to go up a lot. How much is not clear, and that depends on how much you think heating will be elect electrified. There are people, I'm not one of them, who think a lot of our houses will be heated with hydrogen. Um, I'm not on that bandwagon. Uh, and so on. And it depends you know, how we're going to do with industry. We're going to electrify it or burn hydrogen to make the high temperature heat or whatever. So you can get a range of predictions. So we took one. We need an hour-by-hour -hour model. And a free consultancy, very kindly, who built a very careful model, uh, lent me their model. Because making every hour of the year is not so easy. Um, and that has 570 terawatt hours, so that's roughly twice the demand today for electricity. But then I said, we can't just publish with that, because somebody will come along and say, how do you know it's not all different if you've got the demand? So we said, we look at two other levels. So we looked at 440 and 700, so plus or minus 130. So those span the range of models you can get there. Now, for those other ranges, we didn't have a careful model, so we took Afri's model and we did violence to it, with not with their approval, and we moved a lot more heating to be electrical, for example, in the upper model, and the lower one we had less electrification of other things and so on. And when we did that, there's almost no change in the cost of the power. I mean, you, in the upper case, you need more wind and solar and you need more storage, but the cost of my, it just scales up and down. The cost of the electricity you get out of the system is roughly the same. Well, within 1%. So that brings us to the $64,000 question. It won't be $64,000, but what is the cost of power then per megawatt hour? Uh, and you've got an average for the system. You've got the amount for the power that comes straight out of wind and solar and to a consumer. And you've got an an amount for the bit that goes through power storage, and then those two last ones have to average to the total system cost. So where are you on that? Right. So if I look at our, the case that I was mentioning, that we have 
wind and solar is 33% bigger than demand, uh, if I assume that wind and solar cost £35 a megawatt hour, or come to different values in a minute, uh, then I've got to pay 1.33 times £35 for the wind and solar. So that gets me to 48 or something like that. Uh, then there's 15% that at that level has to come from storage. Now, the storage that will deliver 15% cost me about, in a middle case, £80 a megawatt hour. So I've got 1.33 times 35 plus 15% of 80, which is 12. I can do that one in my head. So when I put those together, I add that with a cost of about £60 a megawatt hour. And then I say, I've got to add a bit of contingency. I've got to have, the, this is for the electricity fed into the grid, by the way, because I didn't want to get into the increase of transmission costs and because that's what the model we had from A3. So I add uh, about, I add um, four pounds, one pound for providing battery for this short term fluctuations, three pounds for transmission. So in that simple model, I end up at 64 pounds a megawatt hour. But, but that's a central value. We then say, hey, but wait a moment, we had to assume a discount rate. And then we had to assume, we had different costs of storage. So we, we varied uh, the cost of storage by plus or minus 50%. We said, this is what we think it'll cost. That's what all the experts or most of them think, but we don't know. Then we said, maybe wind costs 30 pounds, maybe it'll cost 45 pounds. And then we also said maybe the discount's 10%. So we get a range, including the contingency and the uh, extra transmission, from about £52. That's with 5% discount rate, £30 a megawatt hour for wind, the lowest storage costs, up to just over 90 That's with the top storage costs, £45 a megawatt hour, 10% discount rate. So somewhere in that range. And let's just drill into one piece of that, which which went past at speed, which was that you added four pounds for transmission, but that's not for distribution. That's not for all of these homes that are going to be electrified. That's for the um, presumably getting the electricity to where it's going to be electrolyzed to fill this long-term storage. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, it's three pounds, actually. It was one pound for batteries, three pounds for transmission. But we'd say we're calculating... The cost of electricity that's at the the jet at the you know, power station gate, if you like, as it goes into the grid, the wholesale cost is somewhat different because there are transmission losses, transmission charges, so on and so forth, and then it gets distributed, and that's totally different. But this is close to the wholesale cost because there are two effects there: the inefficiencies and transmission charges. And um, but we do have to say, what will it cost to get it from? You know, a wind farm out in the North Sea, just some salt cabin in Yorkshire or somewhere or other. So we have to put in so many pounds per per mile per megawatt for uh, for transmission, and it's that's an interesting thing actually. Everybody agrees we're going to have to transmit invest a lot in the grid between now and twenty fifty. But the question is, will that make transmission more expensive or less expensive? And that's not obvious because if we've made a bigger grid, but it's transmitting more power. So, you know, per megawatt hour, actually our ministry and their wisdom think it costs 
will go down. But we didn't assume that. We've always been conservative. Now, that £3 per megawatt hour, if we gross up these figures to the um, investment in generation, transmission, storage, I mean, how many billions are we talking about if you do it instead of on a per megawatt hour, but, you know, real money, as it were, the actual total billions? No, uh, if you take the the wind and solar that we'll need, um, I took Bayes' last estimates of the cost of building, and I worked out how much more we'd have to build, and we'd have to get up to about 300 gigawatts. It's a mixture of solar and wind, by the way, because the wind is there in the winter, the solar's there in the summer. And if you mix them in the right way, on average, they can look a little bit like electricity demand, which is higher in the winter. Only on average, it fluctuates like hell from year to year. Anyway, if I take that figures, it's of order 100 billion in wind and solar. But it's a lot, but not impossible. In storage, in the sort of base case of our storage, so this is for the store, for the electrolyzers that make hydrogen, and for whatever turns the hydrogen to power, it also comes out around 100 billion. Now, when I look at the grid, uh, we have not studied the grid, but I have looked at the national grid, and they say between now and 2050, we're going to have to put 100 billion in the grid. So, uh, and, and this is only a small part of the extra transmission. So, you know, there's going to have to be large investments, that's for sure. What extent is the hydrogen that you're going to be putting in these stores, Could to what extent could you characterize that as surplus, using surplus electricity at times when you don't need it to keep the lights on and the and the and the the taxis running and so on. It entirely, I think, because uh, I mean that's our design. It's design a system which you know, we have wind and solar. It meets demand directly, and we have extra to make hydrogen. That's it. But, sure. but well, the... where I'm going with that is, will that extra be in the right place? Because um, there's a lot of concern about curtailment. The problem with curtailment is that there's a reason for it, which is we've not got the grid. It's sitting, it's tremendously blowy out in the North Sea. And how are we going to electrolyze somewhere near those hydrogen stores? That's not the issue. We, uh, if we, in, in order to minimize the cost, you always got to generate more electricity than you would literally need. I mean, there's a minimum value when you just have enough electricity to store and meet demand. But then you are, you're storing every damn bit of wind. You have to have colossal power. There's huge stores that bankrupt you. So, um, you know, in the case we looked at uh, with 570 terawatt hours in demand a year, uh, the, you can get a system that works with 703 terawatt hours of wind, but it will be hideously expensive. If you just go up 10% above that, the cost drops, and then we get this broad minimum. So there will always be some left over. And that's a very interesting question. We have a surplus, which comes about in two ways. Some of the time, the store's full. I mean, you don't make the store bigger than it has to be, so the store's full. You can't store anymore. Or you know, the wind and solar power is so high in some hours, it will be madness to try and store it, because you build a store, in, you know, something to capture it, which was not needed most of the time. So uh, so there is a surplus, which has two components where it comes from. So the question is, uh, it's being generated, would it have any value? So we have thought about 
uh, then there could be uses for electricity which are not in our model of demand because they don't exist today and they will only they, but if there's a cheap spare electricity going somebody will think of a way of using it so i'll give you a couple of examples well it'll be one example one example would be drying biomass if we're going to have a lot of biomass people will be chopping it down and then they're putting it in big hangers and blowing hot air in, through it so that's a wonderful demand because it doesn't matter when you do it you can turn it on and off whenever there's a surplus so that would be a use of it what would be valued at i don't know but another then you start thinking i could make hydrogen for other purposes but when you come into that there's a there are bigger fish to fry because a lot of people think there's going to be a lot of need for other hydrogen. We People argue about what it's going to be for. Now, it seems to me obvious that if you studied producing hydrogen for all purposes, for transport, for industrial heat, etc., uh, and for storage together, there would be system benefits, especially if the other was flexible. Um, and the, the cost of each individual part would be lower than studying them separately. Now, we don't know how to do that for two reasons. We don't know how much hydrogen can be needed. But secondly, we don't know the hourly demand of it. But, so in a sense, we're an upper bound in that sense too. If you, if surely we're not going to waste the spare electricity, and surely we are going to need our hydrogen. And if you costed it altogether, the thing will get cheaper. I don't know by how much. Let, let me just probe, though. So when you, you've costed the hydrogen the production where are the electrolyzers because the hydrogen storage is in these salt caverns there's certain areas of the uk are you putting the electrolyzers close to the storage are you transporting electricity are you transporting hydrogen and how many hours of use of the hydrogen electrolyzers have you assumed i mean these are really key drivers of the economics so um the, the fact is that we are on we're going to be in surplus about 30% of, the, uh, sorry, about 60% of the year. So we'll be using the electrolyzers quite a lot of the time. Not all, because sometimes the store will be full, sometimes too much. So they work. But we looked at that, and it, we think that it's the best option is to put the electrolyzers next to the store. It's cheaper to transmit hydrogen than it is to electricity than it is to transmit hydrogen. That's not entirely an obvious statement because you can look up the International Energy Agency will tell you, oh, transmitting hydrogen costs so much a ton per kilometer. But that's you can't use those figures because you've got to look at the capacity at peak. So we actually went back and calculated the size of the pipe you needed, the cost per kilometer, put in the discount rate, but it's pretty clear that it's going to be cheaper to transmit electricity. I'm smiling because I had episode 115, Yorgo Chachimarkakis, who's the head of Hydrogen Europe. He's basically the leading uh, lobbyist. I called him the Europe, Europe's hydrogen pusher. And we had this quite fierce discussion about transport. And uh, you know, if what you're trying to transport is electricity to an electrolyzer, then it's quite clear to me, as you, as it is to you, that you would do it as you would trans. You know, if you can, if you've got a choice, either to electrolyze and transport the hydrogen or transport the electricity, you transport the electricity. Um, but it, we had this quite fierce discussion and I argued that he was arguing also that the hydrogen should be distributed out to homes, to petrol stations, and that having two distribution systems would be cheaper than just one, which I find mystifying. 
I, I don't understand that, and I don't believe it will be transmitting it to homes to meet our homes myself. But there, there is an exception to this, which is if you could use a refurbished gas pipe, might be cheaper. So, for example, there are a lot of offshore wind coming arriving in Scotland. Now, there are north-south gas transmission yeah. lines which end up near where we will put Oh, and they, but these are high-pressure transmission. This is not distribution lines. These are transmission lines, and I agree totally. We, um, we're not interested in distributing hydrogen. We're interested in making yeah. making large amounts and making electricity out of it. So you've come to coming back to the numbers. You've got then uh, somewhere between fifty-two and ninety pounds up, and that's the, that's your upper bound. You can then flex that with some other bits and pieces to try and bring it down. But that's kind of worst case then is 90 pounds per megawatt hour. Yeah, I think the worst case, I really don't see will be 45 pounds a megawatt. Oh, I should say, of course, this is all at 2021 prices. Yes. So if you could tell me what commodity prices will be in 2050, I mean, it's not going to be that number. Oh, there's, there's inflation in there. Um, so, yeah. But let, let me come back now to Tom Sampson's claim on his episode, which was that he can do nuclear also in 2022 prices at and he, his upper bound for his small modular reactor, which isn't very small, that's 470 uh, megawatts electric Rolls-Royce SMR. He was saying 70 pounds. Now, the the way I was trying to persuade him that this might be used is you might be electrolyzing hydrogen for, let's call it, 40 weeks a year. And then for 10 weeks a year, when there's low wind, low solar, those times of correlation that you talked about, Chris, that you might get a very high electricity price on the power markets. And so you'd stop electrolyzing uh, and and flip over and serve the power market, just serve it into the grid. And yeah. so you could be getting an average that meets his maximum, he was talking about 40 pounds to 70 pounds for his output. So isn't that a good role for nuclear? Possibly, but I have not. As a matter of fact, it's the next thing I plan to do. I haven't modeled that seriously, but uh, and it, it's a complicated issue because people tell you, if you use nuclear to make hydrogen, uh, it's cheap because you've got high temperature and the electrolysis is more efficient. But if it's using up heat to make high temperature, if it's making less electricity. So actually, the gain is not as big as people claim. And I, I mean, I actually think almost certainly that doesn't work, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't go to the stake on that. However, there's one other thing we didn't mention to see just set up a bond again. I said that we, we did model using compressed air energy storage together with hydrogen. So compressed air energy storage is, um, and it's got to be what I call advanced compressed air energy storage. But there have been systems around running for 30 years or more in which you pump up a lot of air and high pressure and keep it in an underground cavern. You let it out again and it turns a turbine. Now the problem is, as you know, if you pumped up a bicycle, when you compress air, it gets hot. And the converse of that is when you expand it, it gets cold. So these systems freeze. So the systems that exist burn gas to stop it freezing. Now, we can't do that in a zero net zero world, if we want a lot of it anyway. So instead of that, what you have to do is when you compress the thing, you store the heat, 
And then when you expand it, you put things back again. So as well as an underground store of air, you have a store of heat. And as a matter of fact, the heat stores most of the energy. The, the air stores what's called exergy. This is the ability to do work, which it does. So we've modeled that. It's difficult because there are only two substantial systems of this type in the world in operation, and they're both 300 megawatt hours. We want gigawatt hour systems, so we don't know how to cost it properly. But we've tried to do it anyway, and we think that for a reasonable range of assumptions and efficiencies, it would lower the cost from the numbers 50 to 90 I was talking of by possibly as much as 5%. I'm feeling very, very good about my um, my, my academic choices uh, when I was 19. So we're talking 40 years ago because I did go big on thermodynamics. And, you know, everything we're talking about is about moving around energy, moving around uh, heat, uh, storing heat, reproducing it or reusing it. And then that fantastic word that you use, which is exergy. Um, so, so what you're saying, though, is that there are ways we can optimize, we can improve and we can come down from your upper bound um, using something like compressed air. But they're quite interesting. There's a point I should make. Uh, if compressed air brings a cost down, you say, why don't I do everything with compressed air? And the reason for that is very simple. If you don't turn its content over pretty damn fast, it's too expensive. So you've got to have some hydrogen there. You've just got to, or ammonia or synthetic fuels. So you've got to have the hydrogen. But, but what's interesting is when you have more than one type of store, does the system, uh, the question arises, how do you schedule that use? So, you know, I'd say, whatever time it is, if in the next hour there's going to be a surplus, do I put it in hydrogen or in compressed air? And if there's a deficit, do I take the energy out? Which one do I take it out of? It's never been studied. So we've come up with our own way that we think minimizes the, close to minimizing the cost, but it's not necessarily ideal. And it's that you want to turn me you want to turn the compressed air over very quickly because that lowers the demand on the hydrogen and it's more efficient. But, but what's interesting is we come up with systems whereas the, the compressed air store in terms of the energy it can store is small compared to the hydrogen store, but it's delivering more energy because you're turning it over the whole time. So that's why I said earlier, I don't like answering the question, how much storage do we need? Because once I get into two tools to store, I have a small store turning over very fast and a large one turning over slowly, or larger. But, you know, I would argue that what you need is clever market design so that everybody who owns one of these assets will use it at the right time. One of our other guests, Yanis Varoufakis, would say, no, nationalize it all and have some state commissar deciding who does what, when, in vast detail. There are, there are two issues here, but um, well, there's a chapter in our report, forthcoming report on the market. And the first is that the I told you that the stored energy in the case I gave you was 80 pounds a megawatt hour. That's just the storage. If I put in the cost of the energy that goes into that store, it's 160 pounds a megawatt hour. So I've got a mixture of stuff at 160 and at 35. Now, who the hell is going to build that stuff at 160? which is used very seldom, but without which the system won't work. So as the present market, no investor in their right mind will put money into something like that. It'd be far too risky. So there's going to have to be some sort of guarantees. I mean, the government's got to say, we're going to need this, so we will guarantee this is the cost. So that's the first big market issue 
how do you get this stuff built? Because it yeah. doesn't like present market will reward short term storage. I mean, storing things for a few hours to reduce the peak, it's very well recompensed. People invest in that. But the second question is if you've got several types of store, we as theoretical physicists or act theoretical physicists have designed a way of scheduling it, which not necessarily the lowest cost, that'd be very hard to get, but uh, best we can do. Uh, but in order for that to work, you'd have to have collaboration between the generators and the storage. They're different people. How's look at this work? When you say collaboration, I mean, it feels to me like what you're saying is that there is an algorithm that will say, well, what is the optimum use of these resources? But then there needs to be a market design which replicates the behaviors that drive that algorithm and not a suboptimal one. Right. So the, the yeah. best we could come up with, uh, we didn't go as far as renaturalization. No. Uh, because where's the money coming from? Right. And, and secondly, you lose competition. Uh, so what we've thought of instead, uh, what well, we just throw this out as an idea, this is a scientific report, technical report, uh, was you could have a central agency, something like the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, etc., take actions. They had instructions you to deliver this, and they would be responsible for buying and selling power. So they'd say, right, Mr. Liebrich, you're generating wind and solar, we will buy it. And we will sell it to the store we think it should go to, so sort of buffer. And they would also procure capacity. So they like renationalization in a sense. It's not a million miles from what National Grid is doing around balancing and around some other uh, things. I just want to, I, I want to, just one observation when now that you've translated the 80 pound storage turns into 160 because of the, it has to also buy the power and then it's not efficient in the way it uses it. So it comes out 160. It does feel to me like that question about nuclear is really critical because I'm pretty sure that Tom would say he doesn't mind selling pink hydrogen at a loss for some part of the year if he can get 160 pounds for a different part of the year. And as long as that part is long enough, he's going to be in the money. Well, we've done the calculation and it's not right. Okay. Well, we're, I, I love John. I, I don't want to. I, I, want, I am planning to look at that in more detail. Okay, I'm pretty okay. sure that it doesn't work. But I, and I'll be I'll be about you know the technology of making hydrogen. You can also make hydrogen with high temperature nuclear reactors by splitting water. But the yeah. generation four reactors, we can't even build those present ones. We'll never get to generation. I just want to touch. I'm just conscious of time, and I want to make sure that um, that we've touched on uh, a, a couple of other things. One is, you're going to have to have, are you not, a lot of generation capacity to go back from all this hydrogen back into electricity. I mean, how many gigawatts of generators are you going to need that are going to be cycling on and off lots of times? Are they not? That's exactly why this is better than the alternatives. We haven't come to that. So we assume, uh, well, in our model, the maximum demand is 98 gigawatts in 2050. So we say, we'll make sure we have 100. That's sort of a nice round number. So in all the numbers I gave you, I have assumed that whatever is turning hydrogen or compressed air back into power can produce 100 gigawatts. That's in the cost, okay? But the trouble is, now you can ask, uh, so uh, that's the killer if I wanted to say, instead of that, 
I will get gas with CCS and run it flexibly, for example. Now, the problem is it's going to have 100 gigawatts, but it's only producing 15% of the power. So it's working on a load factor, you know, the maximum what it actually has to produce divided by what it could produce of about 10%. So it gets outrageously expensive. And flexing nuclear would be even worse. I mean, nuclear only makes sense steady or often making hydrogen. That could make sense. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but, but we put that in there. And, and by the way, one of the things that's interesting is that the question of turning hydrogen into power uh, the literature tends to say it's probably going to be done by fuel cells, but we actually think that four-stroke engines may be better, which is quite interesting. 100 gigawatts of four-stroke engines. Uh, we would not. You could do that. It'd be a lot of motors. So. But you. But when you said 100 gigawatts, if you've assumed that there are times when there is literally no wind, so you've got no wind and, and no solar, so you've said that the the peak demands is going to be a freezing cold night um, or evening where people might be, I don't know, driving around, charging some cars with the heating on, and there's nothing coming out of the wind and solar, so it's all coming out of your hydrogen. That's right. And uh, so, of course, one of the difficulties is we, we only have, and now I confess something that's a little bit of a weakness in our report, We've got this model of one year of demand, okay? And, and it was based on the weather in 2018. So it's not just absolutely uniform and mathematical as well. We simply repeat that 37 times with weather years with different weather, okay? Which means actually we're probably underestimating the maximum missing energy the peak because the times when there's um, no wind are the times when it's very cold. So this means we, we can't model these things very accurately. In the one year we've got, the maximum demand, the maximum demand is 90, but always 98 gigawatts. The maximum missing demand we find in that period is only 88. But on the other hand, there are times where there's 0.2 of a gigawatt of wind and solar. I mean, really nothing. And those could, you know, if it went more than 37 years and we correlated properly, they could coincide. But the 100 then combines the fact that it's a, that you never have zero wind and solar, but equally it could be worse than that year that you've used as a model. Yes. Uh, well, okay. oh, but, but, yes, but 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 but, but. but who, who is going to build those ten percent? I, mean, I guess the because this comes down to the policy question, which says, right, you need to have a policy framework that that builds the wind and solar, a policy framework that builds the transmission, which it is going to need. And personally, I think you're going to need a lot more than the three pounds per megawatt hour because it's all in the wrong places for for where these where where the electrolyzers will be. And then you've got to build the electrolyzers, and then you've got to build your hydrogen salt caverns, which we've not talked about, you know, uh, as much as we probably should. And then you've got to build this capacity um, to generate it back into the grid at the right points in the grid where it can go into distribution, which is probably some more transmission expenditure. We have got none of that policy in place right now, have we? And I mean, but just going back to the numbers, the reason we get 80 pounds a megawatt hour without the input power 
is because there's a lot of generating power, there's a lot of electrolysis, there's a lot of storage. So it's back to the question, but it's the average that matters. That's only contributing 15%, so it gets diluted down. So that's now back to the policy of how do we incentivize people to think in terms of the average cost, not the individual cost. Otherwise, you know, it's not going to work. But the, the policy has to do a lot more than that because, in a sense, the model has to say, well, the average cost, this is the best way to do it. But the policy has to say it has to pay for the most expensive resource that's used the least amount of time for the whole thing to still work. That's all built into the costs I gave you. That's assumed that some... Well, it's built into the average, but it doesn't answer the question of how do you get one of my good friends with all the money to put their hand in their pocket? That's correct. So uh, it's a market question. It's, it's not a question. That, it's not a technical question. The, the, those are the correct average costs with the cost of generating this huge amounts of power and so on and so forth. It's a matter of there's going to have to be uh, I mean, investing in storage is a tricky business because uh, it, it takes you a long time to build this stuff. It's going to be bloody expensive to make all these salt caverns. Um, and then you've got to take a judgment of what can I buy and sell power at in 10 years' time? And what changes of government policy will that be? So it won't happen unless there are guarantees. But if we don't do it, we're going to pay a hell of a lot more for electricity. So somebody's got to grasp this nettle and say, you know, we will come up and make guarantees. You're going to get paid so much a megawatt hour if you build this stuff. Luckily, we now have a department for energy security and net zero. And I'm, I'm very excited to see how that energy security piece uh, manifests itself in, in policy. Just on those caverns, before I leave you, where are they? What are they? Have we got enough salt cavern space? Is all of this been, you know, properly thought through? Yeah, you know, talk about the salt, the salt caverns, the store, the actually, um, okay, and how that piece of it. So, um, this is an important point for other countries because not every country or every region has the capacity to build salt caverns. So, in the UK, uh, supposing, uh, supposing just for round figure, we needed 100 terawatt hours of hydrogen storage in East Yorkshire. There is a capacity, I have this from the British Geological Survey, to build over a hundred times that, simply in East Yorkshire. There's enough to do it all in Cheshire, there's enough to do it in Wessex, so it's not really well characterized. So there are three regions which between them can produce over a hundred times what we need. So there's no question about the capacity. The way they work, these are called solution-lined salt caverns. So you drill a hole down and this has been studied in great detail because something called the H21 Northeast Consortium, that's Scottish Southern Electric and Equinor and some other companies who wanted us all to heat our homes with hydrogen, but it doesn't matter. It's the same. They've, they've costed it all. It's a 600 page report, which we use. And then we say we don't build, well, we don't say I don't believe it. I say we'll add 50% of the cost just to be safe. So the cost have that in at the medium cost. Uh, so they have these things about a mile underground. So you dig down. The reason it's deep, by the way, is you want to be able to put high pressure on it. So you've got to have a lot above it to blow the top off the thing. Uh, they, they, you drill down, and then you pump in water. It dissolves the salt, and then you pump out brine. And they have costed this, and the BTS, British Geological Survey, says you can get enough of it. And the, one of the, the reasons it needs to be so deep is that it's under 
pressure. So if there are any cracks, you don't get leakage. What you get is the thing seals itself. So if it's more that you want, you, you, I think it's the, the pressure. You, I mean, you don't want it to be, you, you can't get the higher pressure than the pressure of the overbearing rock. By the no, way, yeah. the, the compressed air, one of the things with compressed air, of course, you know, to store a certain amount of energy, you need about 20 times the volume of the pipe. So that's one of the reasons you couldn't do everything with compressed air. You'd run out, you'd use up all this source, you'd build every cavern you possibly can. That's not going to happen. But one of the difficulties is that most of the literature just assumes you can have any old parameters you want. But you can't because there's a pressure range. So you've got to decide what depth am I at, what pressure range am I at, how much energy, how much energy, blah, blah, blah. One thing you've presumably not looked at in this is that if we've got, um, you said it was 100 times as much in, uh, in East Yorkshire, then we've got Cheshire and we've got Wessex, why would we not be doing this storing um, hydrogen for the whole of Europe? I mean, we've been blessed with this fantastic salt resource. As long as people are happy with this underneath their houses, which is a whole other uh, conversation, um, why would this not be a fantastic export industry? Uh, I have not thought about that, but there's quite a lot of salt capacity in Germany, actually. So I don't, I don't, I doubt there's a case for it. And I think there's some in Spain as well. Uh, somewhere in our report, there's a reference. So I haven't looked at it for a couple of years. So you can find a map of the whole of Europe, a map of the whole of the USA. I mean, I can ask, but surely this is completely new technology. Well, how do I know what it will cost? Not true. There have been three large salt caverns of the sort of volume we want. Each of these caverns, and we need 90 clusters of 10. They come in clusters because you share the surface facilities. That puts the cost down. Uh, we need 300,000 cubic meters. There are three such caverns in Texas been operating for 30 years. Caverns or clusters, can I ask? Caverns. And so we need 900, 90 clusters of 10, and the the total global experience with this is three. Five, there's a couple in the Yorkshire. But I mean, building, if you can build one, you can build two. But it will, I mean, one of the reasons is, that's one of the reasons we put the cost up by 50%, because the, these things were constructed in the past. And although I'm sure Equinor did their best possible, and they ought to know about this, costing, I mean, I know a little bit from my experience at CERN about the difficulty of costing anything you do under cracked. Very good. Look, it, it, it's, there's so many great takeaways here. Um, there's so many other directions we could take this conversation, uh, and I'd hope that we get a chance to do that in person. I know that we're due to actually meet in, in a few weeks, and I'd love to do that. Um, the bottom line here is that it can be done. We can have a clean electric supply that is of a scale that can decarbonize the whole of the UK economy. And the outside number that you've come up with is 90 pounds per megawatt hour, which is, of course, expensive compared to the 30, 40 pounds that we're used to in the historic past with polluting power. Um, but it's not off scale. And if we can bring it in for 50, 60, 70, then it's certainly um, a perfectly viable future. I mean, over the last year, in most of the last year, the wholesale price of electricity was over 200 pounds. Yes, but it was an exceptional year. We shouldn't take that as a desired destination. That's another exceptional year. Very good. You're right. You can be done it. You can do it. And the alternatives, in my opinion, are more expensive. 
just one qualification, if you don't mind, Michael. You said we could decarbonize UK. This was only during the electricity. Well, but it was growing the electricity to expand into the areas of heating and transport. So, yeah, yeah. If you expanded it, it's quite true that if we went to a bigger system, the cost per megawatt hour would stay the same. Yeah. Very good. Look, it's a huge pleasure um, speaking with you about this piece of work. I look forward to its publication. I shall uh, enjoy the commentary around that, and I look forward to meeting up with you in person. Thanks very, very much for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. So that was Professor Sir Chris Llewellyn-Smith, Emeritus Professor of Physics at the University of Oxford and author of a forthcoming report on behalf of the Royal Society on the future of the UK energy system with a specific focus on long-duration storage. Next week will be the final episode of Season 8 of Cleaning Up, and we'll see the return of Damilola Ogunbiyi, who first joined us on Episode 62 of Cleaning Up back in 2021. She is, of course, the CEO of Sustainable Energy for All and co-chair, along with Achim Steiner, who joined us just a few weeks ago, of UN Energy. So please join us at this time next week for an update on all things energy access with Damilola Ogunbiyi. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation.